And welcome, everybody. This is Jake Novak. This is Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am coming to you today from the APAC Policy Conference, the annual APAC Policy Conference in Washington, D.C. And as many of you know who have been following my social media feeds at JakeJakeNY on Twitter or on Facebook, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K, you know that I've been writing for several weeks about how many different factors have led to this being the most important, most scrutinized, most watched, most cru- crucial APAC policy conference ever because of so many different factors. And if, even if any one of those factors was just the only thing going on this year, it would still be probably the most important APAC ever. Um, I think the most important factor is the accusations and the singling out of APAC by Congresswoman Elon Omar a couple of weeks ago, where she talked about basically APAC being responsible for a financially fueled corruption of American politics. I've talked about that on a number of previous editions of Novak Now already, but of course, she didn't just insinuate APAC, she didn't just hint about it, she said the word APAC in the tweet with a big exclamation point. So that alone would make this a very scrutinized and important APAC, an important conference for APAC to respond to that, even if just in their actions. In other words, not to say her name, and I have not heard her name mentioned at any podium in the main session at APAC uh, since it started. Yeah, it started on Sunday, and obviously this is Monday, but of course there are some events that go on on Saturday night, and uh, even on Saturday there are there's a bas- basically a special Shabbat-type program for people who are coming in for the entire weekend. Um, so there's that. Uh, the fact that we are just less than a couple of weeks away from an Israeli national election, I don't think there's ever been an APAC this close to an Israeli election, and so that also made it so important. Um, the fact that we are coming just days after President Donald Trump recognizes Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which later today at the White House the president is expected to make official. Um, that would make that this the most important APAC ever. And then, of course, now, as I'm sure you've been hearing overnight in, in the United States and in the early morning hours in Israel, a rocket attack into central Israel that unfortunately this time did hit a target or, you know, there's never any real target other than just civilian area, but it did hit a home in the Kafar Saba region, and thankfully, just moderate injuries as the worst result of this, but a couple of infants also injured, and six people total. So that also has cast a pall over the whole thing, but again, made more of, of made more scrutiny over this event, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will now no longer remain at APAC overnight. He will not be here for Tuesday mornings, what was supposed to be a live speech. From what I understand from my colleagues at I-24 News, uh, specifically reporter Ellie Hockenberg, uh, Netanyahu will leave a video address, which I think is being produced right now, and that will be played for the group either today or tomorrow. We'll, we'll get more details on that. And again, you can follow my Twitter feed at JakeJakeNY for coverage of that, coverage of a lot of things over the course of any your day. You should check back in. And uh, you'll have that information. I want to talk a little bit, though, about what has happened so far at APAC, what we've heard so far, have a little bit of commentary about that, and then also talk about some of the general news that's playing into things right now. Uh, As I said, APAC officially started yesterday, Sunday, 
But um, on Saturday night, it begins. And one of the things that I've noticed is that despite the attacks from Elon Omar and the people who jumped on board with her, you know, it was a join the bandwagon kind of comment that Elon Omar made about APAC. And online, at least, she got some people to echo her her inaccurate and horrific statements. And again, in previous editions of Novak Now, I've talked about her statements, how inaccurate they are. To summarize very quickly here, the idea that Jewish money or APAC money or anybody's money is influencing American policy on Israel doesn't really have much of a leg to stand on. Um, if you look at all the very well-documented campaign donations in this country over several, several decades, Israel ad- advocacy, whether it's bundled by APAC, of course, APAC doesn't make any donations, but sometimes they do admittedly connect donors to candidates or uh, people who are running for re-election. But even if you count all that money, all of those donations, it doesn't crack the top 30 <laughs> of donors in any given election over the last several decades or any election where we have documentation going back you know, more than a generation. So in other words, yes, there is pro-Israel money that is donated to candidates and potential uh, and people who are running for re-election, but it isn't even in the top 30 of the money. So if you're talking about a money problem in this country, if you're worried about corruption in this country based on campaign donations, starting at APAC is ludicrous from a mathematical standpoint. It just doesn't make any sense. Unless, of course, you're an anti-Semite, unless, of course, you're trying to promote conspiracy theories. They seem to go hand in hand. It seems like anti-Semitism and conspiracy theory promotion go hand in hand. It's never, oh, I don't really like this position that really happened. It's always, well, here's the real reason. Here's what's really going on behind the scenes, man behind the curtain type of nonsense. Uh, Conspiracy theorists and people who embrace that kind of stuff... I have always found to tend to end up being anti-Semitic or always anti-Semitic all, all, all along. But these kinds of problems, this kind of mathematical proof just doesn't seem to bother anybody who likes to promote this kind of nonsense. So with despite that kind of horrific slur that has no basis in reality being hurled at the people here, I have not noticed any combativeness, any sadness, any thing other than just resolve but but there's there's a collegial atmosphere here at apac it's still a nice event they produce it very nicely here um it's kind of a a reunion you know you're if if you're a jewish person in america who went to a jewish school or active in a synagogue or went to a jewish camp you're going to see people you know uh i haven't been stopped by that many people just to say hi but but a good number still and that happens to you if you go to apex so there's that feeling going on and i haven't felt any kind of bitterness or fear or sadness in in the convention hall or anything else like that remember this is happening in washington dc at the washington convention center and by the way it is not called the washington convention center because it's in the city of washington it's it's, it's named after a man named walter washington the things you le- the things you learn uh, when you actually pay attention to the signs on buildings, I learned that this weekend. I always thought it was just the Washington Convention Center named after the city of Washington D.C. Who knew? So now you know that as well. You've you've been in, you've informed of you've been informed of an interesting little fact here on uh, Novak now on the Nachum Siegel Network. Um, but anyway, I haven't seen any of that. What we've heard from the speakers in the main session has been a couple have been a couple of very interesting things. First of all, yesterday we had two pieces of news that were broken. Um, 
First was the president of Honduras announcing his intention to move the, his country's embassy to Jerusalem and to start that process, and he made it sound like it's going to happen. And a very similar announcement from the prime minister of Romania, who basically said she's going to do this, she just needs to get the consensus of certain people within her government. It sounded like it was just a couple of formalities, and she got obviously a huge, huge ovation for that. Um, these are significant pieces of information. First of all, Honduras, obviously not a huge major player in the international world stage, but an important country, any country that, that goes along and moves its embassy to Jerusalem is important, not just for the symbolism, but also because it continues to prove wrong all the pundits and the so-called experts who said that when the United States under President Donald Trump moved the embassy, no one else would do this, that we would be alone in the world. And there have been a number of countries that continue to do this, and it's smaller countries sometimes, not the biggest players, but it, it's it's impressive when anyone does it. Romania is a little bit of a bigger story. I would actually say it's a much bigger story for two reasons. One is it's a country where that had a large Jewish population at one time. You know, they don't call it Sammy's Romanian restaurant for no reason, folks, in, you know, in Manhattan. It, it once had a large Jewish population. It makes, it, it's a big deal when that happens. Secondly, it's a big deal because the current prime minister of Romania, the, the, the country of Romania, now sits at the head of the presidency of the European Council, which is kind of like a committee within the European Union. And on Saturday, when we were getting reports that she was going to make this announcement, that she was going to say something, that she was going to say that they were going to move the embassy, um, some of our experts in Israel and some of the people in Europe were telling me that that is impossible. Because she's the president of the European Council, there is no way she will make this announcement. There's no way she will do this. She'll get so much pushback from the EU. And if she does, it'll be like an earthquake. That was the, that was the term that was told to me. Earthquake. Romania making this announcement would be an earthquake. Well... I hope the ground shook under somebody's feet in Europe yesterday because she did make that announcement. And if it's an earthquake, let it be an earthquake. Let the European Union know yet again that some of these Eastern European countries, and for those of you who have been following what's going on in the EU, I hope you're paying attention. The Eastern European bloc within the EU, especially Hungary, and now countries like Romania, and to some degree Poland, have been pushing back on the policies of the EU dominated by France and Germany, obviously mostly by Germany. They don't like their open borders policies. They don't like the way that they have allowed them to can remain under the thumb of Putin and Russia. Remember, all these Eastern European countries, folks, rely way too much on Russia for a number of things, especially heating oil. You know, Eastern Europe gets cold, right? I mean, they have colder winters than we mostly have here in the United States. They need Russian heating oil. And they want to get out from under that thumb of Putin, and Europe isn't helping them do that. Their environmental policies have guaranteed that they're basically under Putin's thumb. I mean, this is just, you know, a similar problem we have here in the United States, although thankfully hasn't manifested yet, but the same problem of mindset. This idea that if we just go green, everything will be all right. Well, we can't go green overnight, folks. We still need this energy. And if we go green overnight and dismantle our fossil fuel industries, whether it's here or in Europe, I'm talking about the Western world here, without enough replacement energy ready to go, not in the future, not, oh, we'll get this green technology one day, I mean ready to go right now, our energy prices will go sky high and our reliance on foreign powers will grow. And that's what's happening in, the, in Eastern Europe. They don't want that. And Israel, with its new natural gas industry burgeoning, would love to step in and help the Romanias, the Polands, and the Hungarys of the world. And I think, by the way, that has something to do 
with those countries looking to align themselves a little bit more with Israel these days. And that's a, a topic for an entirely different edition of Novak now, and I would like to get into that because the energy industry, of course, is very important to me. And even if you don't think it's interesting to you, I hope it is on the hot days of the summer when you need that air conditioning and on the cold nights in the winter when you need that heat. Uh, and I know we all want to have clean energy, and I want to have cleaner energy, energies to, energy too. And by the way, the answer to that in the short term is natural gas, which is 50% cleaner than most of the energy we use, whether it's oil or coal. And the advancements in nuclear waste disposal or, or, or protection have made nuclear power also a better choice than these pie-in-the-sky wind or solar ideas, which are nice little augmentations to what we already have, but they cannot replace what we need now. And Israel and its natural gas play can play can be big players in that. So that made huge news yesterday with uh, the Romanian prime minister saying that because it was unexpected. It's not because Romania is so important a country on its own, but again, their seat in the European Council and their history as a once heavily populated Jewish country make that more important. And of course, she made two other announcements. The prime minister made two other announcements other than the embassy move, which I think are important for the Jewish people, which I want to mention here. First, she mentioned that Romania is going to open up all their documentation about the World War II era. So in other words, people who are looking for some kind of history of what happened to their family during the Holocaust might have some chance now to find out and find out uh, just the definitive answers. Um, you know, you can never underestimate how important that is to a family, to people who, who want to have to be able to close a chapter and understand their history. And the second thing she said was that Jews who were forced to renounce their Romanian citizenship during the communist era, because that's what the communist bloc countries did. If you fled a communist country during the Iron Curtain era, uh, most of those countries forced you to renounce that citizenship. And so for most of us here in the West, we thought, okay, big deal. You're leaving the country. What do you want to be a citizen for? But if you're a family that might still have some property or might still want to be able to move about freely in a country that your grandparents moved, lived in or your parents lived in, uh, getting your citizenship back is important, and she said that that would be something that would be granted to Jewish people who were forced to revoke their citizenship. So important statements from the Prime Minister of Romania, which really, I think, led the the news uh, yesterday at APAC. And by yesterday, I mean Sunday. Um, and then, of course, there were some other speeches that really caught my attention. In the evening session, you had one member of the British Parliament. If you guys remember the the... the the news a couple of weeks ago, seven or eight members of the British Labour Party, who, some of them Jewish, not all of them Jewish, though, including this woman who spoke last night, publicly announced they were leaving the Labour Party. Now they didn't join the Tories, they didn't join the Conservative Party, and for, from they've created basically their own block of just a few votes. But as a very important gesture, they left the membership of the Labour Party because explicitly this wasn't this isn't my analysis, folks. This isn't Jake Novak guessing. This is what they said very publicly. They said the growing anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is unacceptable. The growing anti-Semitism of Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of ant of the Labour Party, is unacceptable, and so they're leaving. And one of the non-Jewish members of labor who did that spoke last night, and she was very resolute in her support of Israel. I mean, she didn't just say, like, look, I, I got my problems with Israel, but, uh, you know, this is going too far. She didn't say that. She went further, than, much further than that. She said she's a huge supporter of Israel. She believes that the British uh, government should always be a supporter of Israel. Stuff that, you, you know, that we will usually hear from right-wing Republicans here in the United States. We heard from her, and that was very, very well-received. Um, there was also an interview with Ambassador Ron Dermer, 
uh, the American-born from Florida, a graduate, a graduate of, uh, of UPenn, who is now the Israeli ambassador to the United States and has been for uh, about six years now. And he made a really great uh, soundbite, catchable uh, statement. Um, my colleague at I-24 News, anchorwoman Michelle McCory, was interviewing him. And uh, just to give you a little behind the scenes, we were not supposed to get into the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction movement. That was not a topic. But he ended up talking about it anyway, much to our delight, because that is an issue that, of course, is on the minds of almost everyone here at APAC. So, you know, there are a lot of, by the way, a lot of young college students. I know there's a lot of high school students also. A lot of young college students here at APAC. And they are facing every single day on their campuses and some of their classes, uh, you name it, uh, BDS-type nonsense. And so it's a really big issue. And I know that APAC, of course, is addressing it and talking about it, but I guess they just didn't think that that was the best topic for Ron Dermer to talk about. But he wanted to talk about it. And then he made a great, great statement that I hope everyone will remember. I hope people will cut and paste it. You can find it on my Twitter feed if you go down to last night and keep scrolling. Uh, where Ron Dermer says, given Israel's technology and advancements and innovations, the countries that are boycotting us should really be more worried that we, meaning Israel, will boycott them. And that got a big applause for obvious reasons. Um, It's just amazing how much you have to want to scorch your own earth to hate Israel and hate the Jews. I mean, when you think about it, all the countries that have expelled the Jews, the way that they go down the tubes when that happens, or they treat the Jews poorly, um, it's just one of those things. And, uh, I, I think that that caught, that, that got a really good response from the crowd. Um, there was a big and a very emotional and apparently a very effective, um, tribute to John McCain, who was always a pretty good supporter of Israel, uh, from former Senator Joe Lieberman and Megan McCain joined him, joined him on stage. And so that was an emotional ending to last night's, uh, events. The the schedule for the next couple of days here at APAC, of course, is kind of up in the air because of this rocket attack. Uh, Israeli officials and people who are important to Israel don't want to appear to be pandering to a U.S. crowd, no matter how important that is, while there's that kind of important news in Israel, because it isn't just the rocket attack. Obviously, there will be an Israeli response, and Israeli leaders need to be there for that, or at least on their way back at that point. But as far as we know right now, the schedule will be that Benny Gantz will speak. And by the time you're listening to this on Novak Now, that speech, if it does go on, will have gone, will have gone on. And I want to talk a little bit about Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party right now because – we're getting towards the election, and it's time for Novak now to really focus on that April 9th election, which is getting so close, and some of the things that have been reported, misreported, people who don't, or, and stuff that hasn't been reported. And let's start with Benny Gantz for a second here. I am not going to criticize or discuss much Benny Gantz's record as chief of staff. It goes without saying that to become chief of staff of the IDF is a pretty honorable position, Um it, it, it means that you must have some kind of competence to at least rise through the ranks. Uh, so I am not going to say anything about that. But Benny Gantz, as a politician, is a complete neophyte. And not only is that true, just the facts on paper, but he's acting like that as well. Um, now, we've just gone through an election in this country. It's already been two years. It feels like yesterday, though, of course, where we had a complete non-politician not only run for president in Donald Trump, but win. But there's an important difference between neophytes to politics in the United States who take the top spot of president and a neophyte in Israel who could presumably become prime minister. And that is this. When Donald Trump or anybody else runs for president, let's say they win, they don't have to take other politicians to run the government for them. 
they can, and, and in some cases they do, thankfully, they hire, even at the cabinet level, and people below them, professional bureaucrats, professional people, and I don't, I don't mean that in the negative term, but pro- professionals in management, professionals in government management. A guy like Steve Mnuchin is an expert in the economy. He's not a neophyte in the economy. You may not like the policies of the Treasury Department, but there's no denying the man understands finance. Okay, People like Larry Kudlow, my, my former co-worker and colleague and anchor, uh, who I executive produced for for several years, is an expert on finance, things like that. But if you're the Israeli new prime minister and you've never been a prime minister before, let alone a politician before, you've got to choose someone from a party to be the foreign minister. can't be someone who's an expert and, and knows a ton of languages. You know, it's always a scandal in Israel, in my opinion, when the foreign minister is appointed and it's someone who doesn't speak English. Uh, you know, the most important relationship Israel has with any foreign country still is here in the United States. To appoint a foreign minister or appoint person on foreign affairs who doesn't speak English seems to me, you know, just really stupid. And one of the great successes of, of the Yitzhak Shamir government was his appointment of Moshe Arendt to be foreign minister when he was foreign minister. He was also defense minister. He was a fantastic English speaker and it was really important. And of course, it, it should go, come as no surprise that Moshe Arendt was really a great mentor of Bibi, of Bibi Netanyahu. And he, got, he, sat, he sat him down and said, listen, your, your English is fantastic. You grew up in this country, in the United States for at least some of your childhood. You have an academic professor at Cornell who's your dad. You know, you need to use that. And of course he did. So Benny Gantz, uh, you know, if he wins, he, he doesn't have any experience as a politician in Israel. And again, he's showing that with some of the things that have happened just in the last few days. He's been quoted as saying he thinks Netanyahu is going to try to kill him, which is not something an experienced politician would say because it makes you look weak and it makes you look like a parent, paranoid person, which doesn't work well in an election. And that's going on right now. And that's an obvious sign of someone who's not all there. He's also not understanding some of the minutia of what goes on in an election. Um, he, he doesn't. He, he kept his positions quiet about a lot of things and doesn't seem to really be have strong policy positions. And, you know, look, I, at this moment, his blue and white party is still leading in the polls, but they don't have enough votes to get a coalition. In other words, they might get one or two more seats than Likud, but Likud and other right-wing parties together will have a bigger coalition. Uh, And that's the way it's shaping up right now here uh, as we take a look at the election coming up on April 9th. Um, But Gantz has this big speech that he's going to make at APAC, and again, by the time you hear this broadcast, it'll have been made. And there's a number of tests that he's going to have to pass. First is he needs to be able to speak in a passable English. I mean, an English that people can really hear the nuance in, and it's not easy to do that. And I don't begrudge him that. You know, I, I certainly don't know how well I would speak Hebrew in a speech, uh, even if I had weeks to practice it, and I don't know how well I would do it. So I'm not trying to sound superior here, because I'm not in this instance. But it's important for him to do that. It's important for him to make clear some of his policies. It's important for him to make it clear that he understands that he is not exactly well-versed in foreign policy and these kinds of matters, and explain to the, pub, to, to the audience at APAC how he's going to make up for that. Who's he going to appoint as his foreign minister? You know, Yair Lapid is pretty well-spoken in English. I think he's, better, he's certainly better than Gantz. And he's got uh, you know, a good look about him. He's a former anchorman. He's, a, he's, a, he's an attractive guy. Uh, can't underestimate that, folks, when it comes to public persuasion. You know, maybe he announces that Lapid is going to be his foreign minister or something like that. I don't know. But the point is, is that he has to make bridge that gap. He also has to overcome 
the entire amateur aspect of his political career. And he has acted like an amateur because he is an amateur. And sometimes that's refreshing, even in a, in a situation like in Israel where you need to be a little bit less of an amateur if you're going to run the government. But sometimes it can be refreshing to have a fresh face, but he's got to be able to assure the folks at APAC and, of course, in Israel who will be watching that he's not completely a neophyte, not completely unaware of what he's going to have to do and where he's going to have to do it. But I want to get back to these comments that Gantz made that came out last night about how he feels that if Netanyahu could kill him, he would. There's an underlying narrative there that Gantz was trying to tap into. So as unplanned and as unfoolish as those statements were made, I know where they're coming from. I need to take you back all the way back to 1995 to explain that. For those of you who remember, of course, in 1995, that tragic and really atrocious event when Yitzhak Rabin was, was assassinated. And whatever we felt about Yitzhak Rabin's policies, whatever we felt about him personally, um, that assassination was, of course, a very, very low point in the history of the state of Israel and of the Jewish people. And the narrative came out after the assassination, moving into the election that took place several months later, that Benjamin Netanyahu won in his first stint as prime minister, the narrative among the left in Israel was, if you remember your Tanakh, Ratzachta v'gam Yarashta. If you remember the story of King Ahav, King Ahab in English, who kills somebody near his king, his palace, who has a, a, a garden, a vineyard that he, a vineyard that he wanted, so that he can take it. So they trump up charges against him. Uh, his wife, Izebel, Jezebel, basically tells him, hey, trump up some charges against this guy, kill him and take his vineyard. And Elijah comes and points the finger at him and says that famous line, you murdered and you also inherited? You can't murder someone and inherit their, their, <laughs> their estate. That's not how it works. And that was the narrative, the outrageous narrative that the left placed on Netanyahu after he won that election. They accused him in the fact that when, you know, during the peace process, Netanyahu was a regular person on American and Israeli TV, of course, accusing Rabin of, of making mistakes here that would endanger the lives of Israelis. And when terrorist attacks did occur after the Oslo Peace Accords, there were people on the right in Israel and on the left and in the center who felt that Rabin had betrayed them. That's not Netanyahu's fault. Netanyahu didn't create that situation. The Palestinian terrorists did, and Rabin, to some extent, was responsible for making a deal that did not ensure the security of the Israeli people. He certainly did not deserve to be assassinated. He deserved to be voted out. Okay, not assassinated. But they decided to blame Netanyahu for that, and then they used that term on him, that he had murdered, quote, murdered, not literally, not literally killed Rabin, but created a situation within Israel that made Rabin's life endangered, and, of course, eventually did lead to his assassination. That was the accusation that, that, that they placed on Netanyahu's shoulders. So what Gantz is tapping into by making the statement that Netanyahu want to kill me too is precisely that, that he wants to make a rabbin out of me. He wants to make, he wants to demonize me as someone who will jeopardize the security of Israel so that one day some right-winger will kill me like the person who killed rabbin. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. That's what he's tapping into. So it's really a very highly emotionally charged, landmine-filled statement that Gantz is making, and it is not the statement of someone who can be, have the temperament to be the prime minister. And if you remember, Bugi Herzog, Chaim Herzog, four years ago when he ran against Netanyahu, also started to make some really outrageous statements towards the end. 
towards the end of that campaign where people noted that this just doesn't sound like a prime minister. He can't be a leader of the Israeli people when he makes these kinds of statements. And I'm not trying to ignore the statements that Netanyahu sometimes makes and the petty way that I believe he has treated some of his own people who could have been his apprentices or his successors. That's a huge problem in Israel that Netanyahu has not groomed a successor for him. He's been prime minister for 10 years now. And that, but that's another issue that we could get into in another time. The fact is right now, though, that Gantz is not showing that kind of leadership, that even a flawed Netanyahu is much better than he is. And that is what is really coming through, especially with these latest comments. I'm Jake Novak. This is Novak Now. I hope to speak to you again next week.